am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Hi, my name is Rajat Gupta. I am senior partner with McKinsey and the leader of McKinsey's sustainability practice in Asia. Thank you for being here for this podcast. I have two guests. First, I have Jonathan Wetzel, who's Asia's leader for the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, he's spent 30 years in Asia, and he's one of our senior most uh, leaders at McKinsey. I also have Daniel Pactod, uh, the leader of McKinsey Sustainability Practice based in the U.S., and my conversation will be with these two gentlemen around COP26 and its implications for Asia. So I look forward to this conversation with you, Daniel and Jonathan. Let me first begin by asking you a question, Daniel. You were there at COP. Uh, what are your main takeaways from Glasgow? Is it all doom and gloom, as some commentators have said, or is it something different? I had the pleasure of spending, you know, the first week at COP in Glasgow. And the first thing I would say is the weather was a lot better than expected, which I think was, uh, was a good way to actually start the summit. The, uh, the thing that struck me the most is I think this is really the first time that the private sector has showed up in force. And we had representatives from all the global leadership teams, global companies at COP. And frankly, some, the main reason was less to actually be you know, engaging, if you want, with government officials, but more to engage amongst themselves and compare notes on, if you want, sustainability and this path to net zero. I do think you know, what has made this COP different is that in the last 12 to 18 months, sustainability and getting to net zero has really taken, I think, the, the C-suite and the boardroom by storm across all industry sectors. And so I think there was a very present private sector at COP. And I think, frankly, a lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders also asking a lot of questions. So that's one, perhaps one big observation. I think the, the second one is a bit of a realization that we're not spending more time on why do we need to act. I think the you know, this is really now pivoted to how and what do we need to do. And, and, you know, in the discussions, if you look at the physical climate risk, lots of different data points, you know, one of them that struck me was the next few years, we'll have a billion people on the planet that will be living in unlivable conditions. One of the first dinner CEO discussion we had, we actually had Al Gore join us and he's been on this you know, sustainability journey for 20 years, but talked about what happens to the world if we have a billion climate refugees and what impact will that have on, on geopolitics, on socioeconomic dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that was also the realization that we're way past discussion. Why is this important? I think everybody's realizing this is front and center. And then I think the third thing that I think was really present is the financial sector 
was very much represented. You saw a lot of announcement on, for example, GFANS, on a lot of the, if you want, the capital providers getting together, committing to a certain amount. And I think to some extent, we're all looking at this and we're realizing this will be the biggest reallocation of capital ever. We talk about three to $5 trillion of capital reallocated. And per year, over 30 years, that's, you know, depending on numbers, you're talking about $150 trillion. That's what we will need to rebuild or build, if you want, a sustainable infrastructure for the world. And I think these numbers were out there. I think it was very clear that the financial sector was present at the table. My last, perhaps, observation is an enormous amount of work still needs to be done. And I think there were some disappointing moments. I think there were both countries and industry sectors that thought that people would commit to more. And in one of the panels, uh, I was with the head of strategy of one of the large oil and gas company. And the word that was used was humble. Humble because, you know, when you look at what the work that needs to get done, there is a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet. And I think a bit this realization that, you know, there were some disappointing moments I think there is a sense of optimism in the sense that there is now capital, there's a massive amount of technology innovation that we need, but there's an enormous amount of work that needs to get done for us to actually be remotely close to the target we set in Paris, which is 1.5 degrees of, uh, of warming. Let me turn to you, Jonathan. In the context of what you heard from Daniel, what are Asia's priorities in the context of climate change and what is coming out of Glasgow? How does that differ by part, different parts of Asia? Well, thank you, Rajat. And first of all, let me start by saying that Asia is very much at the center of whatever is going to happen on climate change. I think that was one of the things that became that much clearer through COP26, both in terms of the requirements to deal with the adaptation that's needed for uh, climate change, as well as, of course, the investments that will be needed to mitigate further climate change in the decades to come. I think that was the, the centrality of Asia, if you will, was one of those uh, features in terms of the bright spots of, uh, of Glasgow, notably, uh, for example, the U.S.-China announcement on uh, global collaboration really highlighted the uh, opportunity that type of connectivity between Asia and the world can bring for uh, climate change. So Asia very much at the center. Because as, as we know that there isn't necessarily one Asia, that we have many different parts of Asia. We at uh, MGI have often said that there are four broad categories here. There is the uh, advanced Asia, the relatively higher income economies. There's China as its own thing. There is the uh, emerging Asia, if you will, the uh, uh, lower income but fast growing markets and uh, and lower labor cost uh, regions. And then there is uh, India and the, if you will, the frontier Asia, the, the Asia that is between the rest of the Asia and the rest of the world. Uh, so those four categories are all quite different in their economic structures, their degree of integration, and with that, of course, their exposure to, uh, to climate change. I, I think that we're going to uh, see different policies because of that, but there are some things that are true across uh, across Asia. And maybe if you allow me, I'll, I'll go into one or two of them, but I'm actually gonna turn the question back to you in just a second here. <laughs> So with that, so from a China perspective, China is definitely 
overexposed, if you will, to climate change, that it's one of the geographies where it's just going to be more impacted uh, by extreme heat, by, by flooding. Uh, and so adaptation has already been very high on the Chinese agenda. And that's what they are looking for as part of the global consensus is a, a an agreement on how to finance that, uh, how to put in play the technologies that will be needed to future-proof their, our, our cities and our crops and so forth. And I think that's a big part exactly of what the uh, collaboration conversations with the United States might well be about. But beyond that, China is also one of the uh, countries which has a very large share of coal assets. Uh, and so this leads to a big economic challenge notably around the, the stranding of those assets. China is looking for support, uh, but it's also looking for replacement of those assets with something better, notably, of course, solar and wind and other power generation technology. So decarbonizing uh, the power grid at scale is definitely the other thing that's very high on the Chinese uh, agenda, is how to build a competitive, globally sustainable power generation sector and grid so that's kind of where China is. It's about winning the carbon transition, how to build a competitive power sector uh, while adapting successfully to the, uh, to the physical environmental changes. That's a bit different than the context for a Japan or Korea, where we have also put out research showing that there is a path to net zero for Japan, particularly in 20, by 2050, but it's going to take quite a lot of high technology, as in technologies that haven't yet really been commercialized, notably CCUS and hydrogen, that these are going to be critical for a relatively lower growth, but uh, more um, higher value added economy like Japan, and uh, especially as one that has some difficulty given its geology uh, it, to uh, put in place large scale renewables. So that is going to be a different agenda for those advanced Asian countries where it's about investment in this next generation of technology and winning the technology race there so as to create a uh, case for growth along with decarbonization. The last geography I'll mention is the emerging Asia, where I think, of course, it's a vast and very differentiated landscape. Uh, but if we were to pick out one or two, like for the one that jumps out is Indonesia. And Indonesia has a very different profile in the sense that there is a large role for nature-based solutions, notably, and the role of land use as a, again, early urbanizer uh, in that early stages of moving people off the farms and into the cities. There's a huge question about how that happens happens, where that happens, and of course, when that happens. But uh, how we drive land use and agricultural practices in Indonesia can make a very big difference. Now, with that, the priority for Indonesia is to essentially create a recognition of the externality so that somebody can support the investments that are needed in nature-based solutions. Very simply, Indonesia needs a carbon price, a carbon price which will recognize that the value of its natural capital, preserve its biodiversity, and at the same time not penalizing it for its relatively lower incomes. So different priorities based on different economies. Maybe I could turn it back to you, Rajat, to talk a bit about India. I think you're a lot closer than I. Sure, uh, Jonathan. Let me first start by talking about some of the pledges that India put forward at Glasgow. There is a bookend that India has put in place, which it did not have earlier, around 2070 net zero, because what it does is concentrates our mind to put a plan forward, 
and hopefully leads to stability and single directional policy. It's not like technology costs won't change. There will be many things that will change over time, but at least there is a bookend and a, a, a direction has been set. And in that, India will also hopefully put all the necessary policies in place to move us in that, in that direction. Now, India also upped some of its short-term targets for 2030 over what it had already announced in Paris. These seem to me to be more continuation of what India was, had already committed. So India, for example, had committed 30 to 35% uh, reduced greenhouse gas intensity of GDP. It's up that to 45%. Not too difficult uh, because in any event, in, uh, the, the, this number changes by 1.5 to 2% uh, every year as an economy, low in, lower income economy like India grows. India upped its internal target of 450 gigawatts of renewables to 500 by 2030. Again, not a big shift. It's still a challenge to get there. Where we find the land, how will we integrate so much infirm power into the Indian grid? The one thing that India did put forward is that 50% of its power, the, the energy in its power, will be from non-fossil sources. At least that's my understanding of India's commitment, though it's not completely clear at this point of time. Uh, the trajectory probably was closer to 40% that India was on. So now to get to 50%, I think there's additional work for India to do. So I think if I step back and look at it, a bookend has been provided and some short-term targets have been up. And it, it's heartening to see that India made a set of commitments a few years ago in Paris. Uh, it has performed against many of those commitments, in some cases aided by tailwinds like reducing solar costs, and has now upped its targets. If I just step back to the question that you asked me, Jonathan, on the uh, important things or priorities for India, I might outline five. I think one doesn't change. India is at the frontier of development, and it does have to continue to work to bring people out of poverty and improve their quality of life. And therefore, it has to keep costs down, and costs of all kinds of services, of power, of the supply of water, of transportation, uh, so that people can have more to eat and, uh, and, and, and an improved quality of life. So that remains a very important priority. It comes into balance because some of the technologies that we are talking about, which will abate carbon, do lead to short-term cost increases. The second thing is that India will also, like you mentioned for China, have to deal with the challenge of adapt adaptation. If you take one example of heat stress in India, uh, India is likely to have 400 million people under heat stress enough 25% of the time that they will not be able to work in northern parts of India. Now, that's a very large proportion of man hours lost or lives put at risk if they, have to, if they have to continue working in heat, which is true today because these are very large proportion of India's labor is still in, employed in farming. 45 to 50% is still employed in farming, which is all performed outside. The third challenge that India has to overcome a priority for India is how to build India right. So India can't continue to barrel down the path of building coal-based power plants and blast furnace-based steel plants and coal-based kilns for cement, which it needs in the short term, because many of these things will get stranded a few years later when, when the tide turns. And these assets will not be at that point of time at end of life. So therefore, since 80% of India, India's infrastructure, India's industrial capacity, India's homes haven't been built, how can India strike that balance and build India right? Very important priority.
Point number four will be where will India find the money to invest in these climate-friendly technologies, which, while in the long term may, from an operating cost perspective, like solar, cost less, but from an investment perspective, cost more. Our estimates are that India will need to invest somewhere between 10 and 15 points of GDP extra every year to be able to get to a net zero path by 2050. This number may drop a little bit if we have to get to net zero by 2070, current stated target for India, but it nevertheless will be more than what we are investing today. And finally, I would say the regulatory load that this transition will involve in, in areas of uncertainty will be another set of challenges. I might say it's regulatory load for the government, but it's also strategic load for our business leaders who will have to strike a balance between doing the right things and doing them at the right time. Maybe with that, uh, let me come back to my role as moderator of the session uh, and ask you a question, Daniel. What is this net zero equation? And why do you say that it doesn't close or doesn't solve? And particularly after COP26, do you think it solves better? So, you know, this net zero equation, we've been thinking, uh, our clients and we as a firm have been on this topic now for a while. And for those who have a bit of a math mindset, I think you'd say, hey, if you were to think about a net zero target by 2050, which is, again, science-based targets, it's what was committed to in the Paris agreements. And if you think about this as a set of pluses and minuses of carbon-created carbon removed to get to net zero. That's kind of this idea of this, of this equation that we have to build. And unfortunately, it's not one equation. It's a multitude of equations that kind of are co connected at the same time. I think it's a very complicated model to get right. And I think what's happening to think about this equation is you can say, I'm going to take my electric vehicle share up to 30 or 40%, but you need to make sure that the electric grid follows. And then you need to make sure that that green power is actually affordable. And then we also need to make sure that when we go to the whole value chain that we can produce the right rare earth materials in a sustainable way to actually build all these electric vehicle cars. That's just one example. So you got to think about looking at a whole value chain and it's multitude of value chains that have to be basically rebuilt to get to net zero. And, you know, what companies and what leaders have to do is it's perhaps one of four or five things. you got to look at some assets that, frankly, will never make it, right? They have a level of carbon intensity that you can't decarbonize them. And over time, you got to retire them. I think you're then going to say, hey, I have to build also a whole set of new business, new green businesses. You know, one oil and gas leader said, hey, I'm moving from an oil and gas company to a carbon management company. I'm going to work on carbon capture. I'm going to create new hydrogen businesses, et cetera. I think the third is you take the core asset base and you decarbonize it. So you go from brown to green. And how do you do that? And how are you actually going to fund it? And in some cases, external capital will be required for incumbents to be able to do it. And then I think the last piece is really how are you using nature-based resources? and nature-based capital to actually be able to offset and build that. And I think underlying all of that is also a sense that, you know, we need to get the mechanisms in place for carbon markets to really work. Otherwise, you can't, you can't actually get these equations to work. So this is just an example. We actually did release a, a thought piece on what it would take 
to uh, solve this net zero equation. And we have identified nine requirements. And in that article, we tee up 60 questions that need to be answered. And as a CEO in Glasgow told me, he said, I always look at people like McKinsey for answers, but it's kind of rare that you would publish a report with 60 questions. And I think that's exactly the reason, which is this net zero equation is very, or equations are very difficult, are going to be very difficult to close. Right now, they don't close, right? We're not on path to get to 1.5 degrees. We're closer to get to three degrees right now. And so we're going to have to answer all these questions. And then at the same time, it's a bit uh, a consequence of us not solving it. We're going to have to work on resilience and, uh, and mitigation. And I think the realization that if we don't get in the 1.5 degree zone, we will have more climate catastrophes that will hit us, more risks that we will have to manage. And so we're going to have to really work on the resilience part of this as well. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential. But the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Uh, I have a question which is for both of you, uh, Daniel and Jonathan. What in your view are challenges or questions that you see business leaders grappling with? Jonathan, why don't you go first? Well, as I think was probably said already, that uh, COP26 has really put net zero out there as being a marker for uh, business leaders around the world. If it wasn't there before, it's certainly there now. And so they're ultimately, it's not a question of whether, it's much more about when. Uh, when will business uh, make the transition and what are the uncertainties, what are the risks associated with it? At this point, so climate change is very much part of the risk agenda for pretty much every board of directors. But that said, actual timing is always dictated by uh, business-specific concerns. Generally, we see five drivers of when a company uh, can and will engage in the transition. And they are in uh, no particular order. First of all, their customers. Companies are wrestling with the rise of a younger, uh, more environmentally conscious consumer, uh, which is willing to choose based on environmental values and as well on the climate transition. So addressing that, understanding its size, its scale, uh, its preferences, it's the first big uncertainty. Secondly, of course, is the uh, regulator. Companies are keeping a close eye on all of these uh, standards and commitments, and even more importantly, incentives that are coming out of the regulator, which uh, be it local or national or even multilateral or global, that there are uh, clearly uncertainties around the pace of the different transitions and power and mobility and the economics that are associated with that. And of course, there is a very big question around uh, a carbon price or uh, somehow uh, incorporating the externality of climate change the economics of an industry, which is something that typically comes out of the regulator. Uh, a third factor is the, is the markets and the investors. 
We've seen more movement in the last 12 to 24 months uh, on the investors getting more transparency around climate and starting to evaluate companies based on their uh, risk performance. So that's a third challenge for management is to say, well, how am I doing? What And what will happen to my sources of capital uh, as these uh, risks become more apparent? That's uh, that meeting that challenge, understanding the uh, expectations of investors is a is a third aspect a third issue they're grappling with fourthly and uh, this is very true for talent driven organizations uh, such as McKinsey uh, is uh, what is the proposition to employees uh, we're uh, living through the great resignation as they say uh, and that's starting to be true in in lots of lots of asian po- countries as we see higher rates of labor mobility and turnover with uh, everything from automation. But simply put, appealing to the employee and sort of recognizing that our environmental values need to be credible within the companies is a fourth level of uncertainty. And then finally, there's the competition. I think that there's just a a vast and and growing set of attackers who are sort of staking out territory on these new uh, technologies. We've seen, of course, a vast acceleration of uh, technology based competition and this is equally true if not more so in the sustainability field whether we're talking about EV AV transition or new forms of power or reimagining uh, Kashmir or uh, for that matter quick serve retail each of these areas the competition is the fifth uncertainty so those five factors are the ones that we see driving managements to start thinking through not whether but when and how and at what pace they make the climate transition Thank you, Jonathan. Daniel? You know, one of the impression from all these interactions with private sector leaders was it's time for leadership with a big L. And, you know, we talk a lot about the term that we want leaders to get in this net zero arena, and it's time for leaders to lead. If you, if you were to just aggregate a little bit what you picked up from, from, from companies, I think the leaders who have realized that this is not about only playing defense, which is playing defense would be, oh my God, I have, to sub- I have to commit to a certain set of targets. I have to report what I'm doing in sustainability, net zero ESG. I have to show what I'm doing in scope one, two, and three. That's playing defense. That's table stakes. That's what everybody needs to do. I think the, the leaders of tomorrow are the ones that realize that that's not enough and you got to play offense. And playing offense means you got to have a really bold vision on how sustainability and net zero could be a way for you to really create value, compete differently, and frankly, reinvent your company. You got to have a bold vision of, you know, one question a, a large beer manufacturer had is um, beer, for example, is generating a lot of carbon and not easy to create a path. Talk about a complicated equation. That's a complicated equation to solve. But the question was, if I knew what I knew today, if I had to just reinvent my company based on the assets I have, the customers I had for sustainability, what would that look like? What kind of products would I have? And I think that reflection of almost you have to decarbonize the core and at the same time build the new, that I think is a bit the pivot we've seen the best leaders now starting to make. I think there's something really important on measurement Of course, there is screenwashing. Of course, there are people making commitments without a plan to get there. But I think the realization that, uh, you know, people will be held accountable. Companies, leaders will be held accountable. And so this notion of really understanding 
how do we actually trace the carbon? How do we measure the progress against the net zero trajectory? I think really important. And then the last thing that would highlight that was really front and center for leaders is the whole talent and people side of net zero. And to some extent, I think companies are realizing this is, it's important to have a narrative with investor. It's really important to have an internal narrative with your employees. And I think the younger generation coming to the workforce cares about this topic dearly, wants this topic to be part of the purpose of any, any institution, any company. And to some extent, you know, we at McKinsey have actually learned, uh, you know, have, have, that's the reason we said, you know, we want to create this new client service uh, growth platform focused on sustainability. And that's the place where we're going to make the majority of our investments. And we also are taking an enormous amount of feedback from our younger colleagues on, you know, how we want to be the biggest force for decarbonization in the private sector. And that's just our example. But I think every leader is now realizing there is an important talent and people dimension to, frankly, how leaders will take their companies, their institutions to net zero. One other reflection, perhaps more in the category of the unsolved problems from COP26, is if you want a bit the north and south divide. And I, I'm not sure I like that term, but it's perhaps more the how are we going to manage a transition, a transition that should be orderly, just and inclusive and realizing that we got really upset with what happened on coal. And I think coal is an example. We had this discussion in one of our sessions with a few asset manager leaders and realizing that, you know, some countries right now don't have an alternative. And the question is, how are we going to use, we talked about three to five trillion a year, 30 years, 150 trillion. How are we going to help if you want emerging market countries kind of finance this transition. And this will only work if we have a new level of collaboration globally. Frankly, a global market for nature-based resources as well, so that people providing offsets can get compensated for it. And then also a way to reallocate, a bit like the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, but a way to reallocate capital from the developed world to the developing world. And I think that is the piece that has really not been uh, solved. I think it's more difficult given the geopolitical tensions in today's world, but it will have to be solved because otherwise I think it's going to be very difficult for us to get our planet to net zero in an, in, in a, again, in an orderly, just and inclusive transition, uh, which I think is really critical if we want to achieve the, the, the net zero target. Let me transition to my last question. And this is to you, Jonathan. What are your messages to Asian leaders what action should they be taking? Well, climate is definitely now on the agenda, as I've been saying. So what do we do about it? I think there are probably, we could chart out a nice, neat process, but we start with the idea of understanding it, that this is definitely a crash course for management and understanding a relatively new science. So getting to grips with an, uh, where the company is vis-a-vis -vis climate science, having capabilities in-house to allow a, an estimation of the risk that it's taking, whether it's the physical risk or the transition risk, these are the first step. And with that, we can take the next step, which is start to define things. Uh, what is our, going to be our contribution? What's our strategy? How are we going to essentially meet expectations? And where? how do we balance growth with the need to 
manage operations for sustainability and stability. That's a definitely a, a big boardroom conversation, uh, but one which ultimately leads to the next step of embedding that conversation at every level of the organization. Uh, we know that transformations, particularly operational ones, require buy-in from across the organization, tremendous amount of bottom-up mobilization needed. One of the things climate does is it actually goes beyond that. It's not only top-down, it's also bottom up, but it's even more inside out, uh, that by engaging the entire ecosystem is really the only way one can address issues like the scope three emissions. What is what, what is one's supply chain actually doing? So this creates a third big challenge is to sort of embed the thinking, not only within the company at lower levels, but beyond the company with their customers, with the supply chain. And then finally, that naturally leads to engagement. We have to engage outside of the company to have the conversation with uh, stakeholders across the country because in many ways, this transition does require a whole of society effort. And business needs a voice. Business needs a seat at the table. So those are the four aspects, mapping, defining, embedding, and engaging. Uh, they can come in any order, but we need all of them. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, let me outline the three takeaways that I have from this. First and foremost, it sounds to me that the last year or two and culminating in COP, the nature of the problem has shifted from no longer being a what to do, but how to get it done. The direction has clearly been set. I think the second takeaway for me is that Asia is a part of the problem. If not in the past, then certainly in the future as Asia develops and it has to be a part of the solution and it can be. And the third one is that this is a period of huge uncertainty for all kinds of leaders, including business leaders. They have to be able to define their path forward in this period of uncertainty for their countries, for their regions, and for their companies. And leadership will be crucial. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.